listening to Ascendant Health and Politics, a show about the day's emerging public health issues and the intersection of politics. Your hosts are Kyle McGowan and Amanda Campbell. Today we're going to be talking about COVID-19 variants and what it means for us moving forward and bringing this pandemic to an end. And I'll have to say right from the top, my sweet little boy is now in preschool and he brought a little something home to share with mommy. So if my voice is a little different today, I do apologize to all the listeners. Um, but we want to kind of start out with some of the the good news there is to share um, as far as where we are with case counts and deaths in the U.S., um, as well as vaccination rates. Yeah, that's that's right. You know, since March of 2020, um, the, the seven-day average of deaths has now fallen below 500, which I think that is really, really, really important to kind of show the progress of where we are in this pandemic. We clearly need to continue to get vaccinated. We clearly need to be vigilant with some of the things we're going to talk about today with with variants and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, since the spring of 2020, the seven-day average in the number of deaths per day is is now below for the first time, and uh, below 500 for the first time. I mean, that's, that's a huge milestone. And also, I mean, we've been averaging, um, you know, over the... The pandemic, you know, anywhere from, you know, 30, 40, 50,000 cases a day in at the height over the, the wintertime. I mean, it was well over 100,000 cases a day. Um, we're now below 30,000 new cases as the average, you know, this is, this is over a seven day average is how they do this for the first time in 300 days. So, I mean, that's putting us back to the summer of, of, of last year. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, and this I mean this is this is a testament to vaccines. I mean vaccines work people. I mean this is this is why we're able to bend the curve down so quickly after uh having all of these vaccines on the market and and just kind of really kind of nerding out for a second with some of these numbers kind of getting down into um the number of people who are actually vaccinated so far. Um, total population in the United States. So this is everyone from babies to uh, people that are, are senior citizens. Um, 48% of everyone has received at least one dose with 38% of, of all of Americans getting two doses. That's great. But I, I, I think it's uh, when people, I'll be honest, I just use that stat and I, I'm I don't like when people use it because it, it's not all of the information because not everyone has access or is allowed to have right. the vaccine. There, right? there isn't a vaccine yet available for all age groups. Right. <clears throat> and so if you take everyone who is available for or able to get the vaccine, that's children 12 and older, 57% of that population has had one dose. And 45% have had two doses. I mean, that, th- this is great. Um, I wish we could do this every year with the flu season. Uh, we wouldn't have the problems <laughs> that we have with flu. Um, but another major, I would call, milestone or major um, uh, point that I want to make as far as these numbers go is if you narrow it down even further to the, the population that's 65 years and older, 85% of those people, 65 and older, have received at least one dose with 73% receiving both. 
And this was the population that we really saw sort of like the most vulnerable um, outside of those who had like multiple comorbidities, that type of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. And and that's absolutely right. And early on with um, the vaccine rollout, there was a real focus on getting to, it started with seniors with comorbidities, then it was seniors, and then it was frontline health workers. And it's grown to um, getting it to mass vaccination sites and pharmacies. And it was just at that point getting numbers in arms. And to be honest, some will probably remember in earlier podcasts, I said it was going to be extremely difficult to meet some of the numbers that uh, both the prior administration and this administration were saying they were going to get done in the first hundred days. Uh, And they did. I mean, it was, I will be honest, I was pleasantly surprised to see um, the number of people who uh, stood up to go get the vaccines early on, but also the, how, how it was rolled out and, and access to vaccines early on. Uh, but there's a big but here. Um, I, I think we have reached the point where we have enough vaccines in the market where we need to do a better job of making sure that we get vaccines to say, you know, at home or not at home, but um, office based physicians. I mean, these are the physicians that are giving you your annual flu shot or childhood vaccinations. You know, they just haven't had the the access to the vaccine here recently because it's been going to just pharmacies and and, um, mass vaccination sites. But moving forward to make sure that we're getting the coverage we need to get those numbers even higher, over 70% is where we want to be of the population that's been fully vaccinated. Um, we're going to have to have to start using existing um, networks of getting this vaccine out. And, um, and I'll say early on, the reason that wasn't done is because they didn't want to spread the vaccine too thin, I guess is the best way to describe it. I mean, Um, You know, you get more bang for your buck when you are putting it at a pharmacy with hundreds of people walking in or a mass vaccination site. But now we need to make sure those doctors who are in, you know, rural parts of the world or the state, I mean, uh, in the country are able to to have the same access. Yeah, I think that's where where we're going to get to here really soon. You know, um, I think it's important for folks to appreciate the fact that we have a pretty robust immunization infrastructure that already exists in this country because that's what we typically rely on on an annual basis for the flu vaccine, trying to get that out, getting it distributed widely, and ensuring that those who need access to it have, have that access. But, you know, the way that distribution has occurred so far has really, you know, happened at such a large scale, um, trying to send, you know, massive amounts of vaccine to the states. They haven't really been able to sort of leverage sort of this smaller scale distribution, if you will. And even kind of to your point, just not having enough vaccine in the market to where you could potentially sacrifice, you know, a certain number of vaccines uh, that come in a, in a box in order to vaccinate the two, three, four, five individuals that would need access to it, you know, over a couple day period right. in a rural doctor's office. Um, but those are still important populations that we need to make sure we touch and reach. And I feel like we're just so close getting to that point. Um, and I'm excited to kind of see where we're going to be um, 30, 60, 90 days from now, because right. we've already made so much more progress than I ever anticipated, you know, we would see at this point in time. Um, and, you know, one thing that we are going to need 
to lean on that infrastructure for as well is uh, probably booster shots, because I think that's going to be probably the next phase of this pandemic as it can ten or this disease really, as it continues to change over time. That That's right. And I mean, we, we expect um, this disease to change and have multiple variants. That's why pharma companies are, are looking for booster shots. And, you know, there, there's a lot of talk that this could end up being um, endemic, kind of like the flu every year, uh, where we have to have a, a booster shot. And, you know, we, we are fully aware that um, this virus is going to change. That's been on the CDC's radar from from day one, and and there's actually a number of, of variants already out there. And I think it's important to understand how a a variant comes. Like, what is a variant? How how do how do these viruses change and mutate? And this is the very um, what I would call biology for dummies section of the <laughs> podcast. But here's the basic way it works. A virus cannot replicate on its own in your body. So the virus will enter your body, find a cell to latch on to, and then within that cell, it will multiply, go to other cells within your body, multiply within those cells. Every time it goes into an individual cell, there is a chance that it doesn't make a perfect copy and it mutates slightly. And if things go from one cell, these viruses go from one cell to another cell, and then to another human, and then another human, three, four, five generations removed, if you start making copies of the same virus, naturally, it's going to change every once in a while. Sometimes they change and become easier to spread. Sometimes they change and become harder to spread. You know, it, it just depends. But this is how the flu works every year. Even though it's a different type of virus, it works in a similar way. So this is on the CDC's radar, which is why they have a national COVID-19 surveillance program, which is working with local health departments and commercial labs and, and universities to identify and monitor these new variants as they spread across our country. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, kind of as you said, the surveillance of emerging variants can help detect, you know, those variants that are spreading more quickly within a population or that cause, you know, more severe disease in people or that are sort of evading detection by certain tests or that aren't responding to the treatments that we have available or hopefully this will never be the case, but that are able to that are not responsive to the immunity that we've either built up as a result of having COVID or having gotten the vaccine. Um, so I think it's important for folks to understand that right now the CDC is monitoring sort of three different categories of variants in the U.S. They have what's called a variant of interest category, a variant of concern category, and then a variant of high consequence. So can you can you talk a little bit more about those? Like what? So is that like? oh, okay, this is one that's on my radar, but I don't need to worry about it, or oh my God, this one's going to kill everybody. Like, <laughs> what, 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 are, what, what do those three levels actually mean? 
Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question. So the the variant of interest category is really just looking for kind of like as you said those mutations that happen within um, the virus that would actually be likely to make it you know more um, easily transmissible or um, reduce the treatment um, effectiveness things like that. And it's really just you know making sure that they are then monitoring how um, that that variant of interest is is spreading throughout right. the, the U.S. And currently, we only have eight variants of interest in the U.S. Now, when we talk about a variant of concern, this is where a particular strain of the virus is actually demonstrating evidence of having an impact on either diagnostics, treatments, or vaccine effectiveness. Um, it's showing an increase in transmissibility or an increase in dis- disease severity. So when you say something like an impact on diagnostics and treatment, that means they're not showing up in current tests or having trouble picking them up or not responding the same way. Yeah. From a testing perspective, that's exactly right. And then from a treatment perspective, they're not, uh, the treatments that we have readily available, which in the U.S. there are two that are currently um, have EUA approval from the FDA, uh, they're not as effective as they are on the original strain of COVID-19. And so in the U.S., we have five variants right now that are variants of concern, and that's the the U.K. strain, the one from South Africa, the one from Brazil, and then two that are actually out of California. So they're sort of U.S.-based yeah, that's right. And, and and so I you know, if you look at the stats, the UK variant and the South African variant have both uh, you know, around 50% increased uh, increases in transmission. You know, the CDC just really want to make sure that we're making sure that they're tracking all of these new variants and how if it is increasing and in, in easy to transmit or if it's uh, you know, causing more severe illness, these are all things that this um uh, surveillance network that the CDC has set up is, is currently looking for. So then that just leaves one other category that the CDC is currently tracking, which they are calling a variant of high consequence. And this is where clear evidence exists that preventive measures or medical countermeasures um, and vaccines are no longer effective essentially against a variant. And thankfully, we do not have any variants currently in that category. And so hopefully it's going to remain that way um, as we continue to, to kind of overcome this this disease. Yeah, every time I hear, you know, high consequence, you think of, uh, you know, Ebola or something crazy. So it's good that we don't have anything falling into that category right now. And this brings back memories of a close friend at the CDC who I always said she had the greatest title in the world. She was the director of the High Consequence Pathogens Unit. And and so I always think Ebola and really nasty things. But it's good looking looking down the road on the surveillance network that we have already in place, that people should have comfort in the fact that the network that we have in place as a country through the CDC and these commercial labs and through even universities are part of this as well, are are tracking these sorts of things so that we can keep up to them in real time and not get behind the ball again. Yeah, I completely agree. One thing that I do want to kind of 
point out and distinguish is that the CDC is doing all of this from a U.S. perspective, from a domestic perspective. Um, and, and actually, the, the WHO, so the World Health Organization, has their own categories that they're tracking as well, and then identify from a global perspective those variants that are, you know, of concern. Yeah, and they're actually tracking different variants than cool because what we're you were talking about earlier variants that are here just in the united states that cdc's tracking but what what, what's the who tracking right now so they're they're basically following a very similar um categorization that the cdc is using but because they are coming at it from a global perspective they have different variants of concern on their list so i mentioned that for example we in the u.s have five Uh, COVID variants of concern as identified by the CDC. But the WHO has four uh, variants of concern. And those are the UK, South Africa, and Brazil strains, just like here in the US. But then the India strain is also on their list, um, which and it's currently not here in the US, even though um, the India strain is present here in the States, it is not yet a a variant of concern. And I think that has mostly to do with the fact that it hasn't been, you know, there hasn't been widespread transmission of it. And we're still learning more, trying to get more data on, um, you know, the impact it's going to have. Yeah, you know, that that's right. And the WHO continues to monitor these variants uh, worldwide. And, you know, we've seen Areas that early on in the pandemic, so we're talking about spring and early summer of last year that did relatively well, you know, India and and specifically Singapore, where we're seeing these kind of a resurgence of new variants. And, you know, honestly, India has really, really been struggling here recently with this new strain. You know, like, why is that? You know, I think right now they have attributed a lot of the the issue the transmission that's occurred um in India in particular to sort of a number of events um that were just mass gatherings and uh people were lax in their sort of uh <laughs> protective measures if you will the things that we've reiterated on this podcast the simple right. things that you can do like wearing your mask uh social distancing washing your hands that type of thing so um a couple of months ago there was a religious holiday in India that occurred and there were thousands and thousands of people that were gathering without masks and not socially distanced, those types of things. So there was that event. And then uh, it happens over a couple of day period. And then there were also some mass political gatherings as well. Um, And I'm no expert on India, so I won't try to pontificate on, on things I'm no expert in. But that really seemed to allow this strain, this variant of of COVID to really gain a foothold in India. And, you know, one of the things that we talked about very early on was about how all those mitigation measures are all about sort of flattening the curve so right. that we we don't actually get to a point where our hospital systems are overrun, that type of thing, and we see an increase in, in deaths unnecessarily. And sadly, that is it's what's happened in India. They have uh, they were not able to flatten the curve and then said they've sort of seen this exponential increase and it's really overrun um, their their entire healthcare system. And uh, it's, it's created a lot of need and a lot of, uh, unfortunately, a lot of unnecessary deaths there. Yeah. And I know we've mentioned this in previous podcasts, but getting to that, you know, bending the curve and uh, it's important for folks to understand that the number of people under 
the flattened curve and the number of people under this, which you see this huge spiked curve. Um, it's the same number of people, roughly, that would get the virus, but fewer deaths. Right. And the reason that is, is getting to your point, because you spread the disease out over time versus flooding a hospital system with everybody sick at once. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening in India right now as they're hospital system is is just being overwhelmed and they're having to make some very difficult decisions about who gets care. Well, we're fortunate here in the U.S. that we've reached a point in our response that we are able to put a lot more focus and energy on helping countries around the world like India, whether that's through, you know, providing PPE, personal protective equipment, or um, sending millions of doses of vaccine abroad, um, or even financial resources that are needed. So, um, you know, it's, it's good that we can begin to lead in that area. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, that's all the time we have for today. As a reminder, you can now find our podcast on iTunes and Spotify. Uh, don't forget to sub sub subscribe. And if you have a moment, uh, positive review. Remember, stay classy, stay healthy, America.